I'm excited this morning to start a new sermon series here in 2024, Lord willing, um, and a series I've never done before as far as a, a Sunday morning preaching series, and that is the book of Genesis. Um, to me, the book of Genesis for many people is probably um, similar to that New Year's diet where you're like, I'm going to start strong, and you start strong, and you fade away, or that New Year's workout plan where you start strong and fade away. How many people have done a Bible reading plan and started in Genesis and made it to chapter 15, chapter 20, chapter 30, and maybe started fading away on their Bible reading plan? Well, our goal is going to be, as best we can, to study the book of Genesis. But I want to start in an interesting place. So if you look at the next slide... Turn to Revelation chapter 22. Maybe not where you expect to start in a series in Genesis, but I want to look at the future and then go back and look at the past. I want to look at the future, look at the past, and then apply it to the present. In Revelation 22, we'll look at verses 1 through 5. It says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb of God shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him and they shall see his face and his name shall be in their foreheads there shall be no night there they need no candle neither light of the sun for the Lord giveth light and they shall reign forever and ever go to verse 12 of the same chapter and behold I come quickly and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. You can turn back to Genesis. But I wanted to start there to see and show the belief that we all have that one day all who are in Christ will spend eternity with Christ, worshiping and reigning forever and ever, as Revelation 22 tells us. We know that, we believe that, we hold to that. And so my question is, how, did we, how will we get there? How will that come to be? And that's one reason why we go back to the very beginning of the Bible, to see the entire story of God his plan, his purpose for all of creation, systematically as he has ordained it, come to pass to end up there in eternity. Who is God? We talked about that two weeks ago. What is his kingdom? Who are his people? And how will we end up there reigning in eternity? Those questions are hinted at, and begin to be explained even back in the very first 
book of the Bible, the first chapters of the Bible. So I want you to go back to Genesis 1 if you haven't already. And as I turned this week, well, actually a couple of weeks ago, to Genesis and began to look through it and to consider this study, um, I wanted to, to just make a note here, and that is that we believe the, the Old Testament is important, right? Some people believe it's not important. Even some famous pastors, preachers in the South in the last few years have tried to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament and say, it's just forget the Old Testament, let's just focus on the New Testament. What we argue is there are 66 books of the Bible, right? And we believe they are all God-inspired, and we hold to those, and so we must read and preach those as well. Well, so let me talk first about the Old Testament, and then I'll talk specifically about Genesis. And I'm going to give you some notes. You can jot these down, or you can look at them. Four common myths about the Old Testament. Some people believe it is insignificant. Why read that when I can just skip ahead and, and read specifically about the life of Christ? Why do I need all this Old Testament stuff, some might say? It's insignificant. Some might even say it's irrelevant. If that's too old, I don't, I don't need to know that or understand how that relates to Christ or the New Testament. Some would say it's inconsistent. Some would say, I can't understand, for example, how do these people have uh, so many wives? And how are these different things going on culturally in their day and time? Just inconsistent, some might say. Or some might say it's inconsistent with the New Testament in some ways. How about it's incomprehensible? Some might say, I just can't understand it. I just can't understand what I'm reading. It's just hard to understand. Those are four common myths. But let me give you the truth that we know and hold to, hold to. The Old Testament is invaluable. I mean, I'm talking, even the boring books are important, right? The ones that might seem boring to us are important. But I think when I say this statement, I think about the book of Genesis laying the foundation for all we know and believe. Right? That's important. How about one of my favorite books of the Bible? My favorite two Old Testament books are the Psalms and Genesis. How about the book of Psalms? What an invaluable resource and guide we have for prayer and worship. And throughout the, the Old Testament, it is invaluable. How should we study it? That's our next question here. How should we study the Old Testament? Well, we can study it as literature. We can study it as history. And we can study it theologically. And all these things, by the way, are important in how we read the Old Testament and in how we, how we study it. All right, so uh, speaking of literature... Um, it's a collection of 39 books, and there's different types of literature, different genres of literature, law, history, prophecy, poetry. We know in this book there are um, genealogies, there are songs, there are prayers, there are laments, uh, prophecies. So many different aspects of literature found in the Old Testament. And so as we study it and as we read it, it is helpful to say, you know, what is this? Is this narrative, as Genesis is, or is this uh, poetic, as you might see in the Song of Solomon, for example? Is this prophetic, as you might see in some books? It's helpful to know. Well, we know and believe this as well. When it comes to the entire Bible, and specifically here the Old Testament, there's one divine author, the Holy Spirit, right? He wrote this. Go back. The one divine offer of the Holy Spirit, various human writers. Languages of the Old Testament, mostly Hebrew, with some Aramaic involved in the writing. It covered a large span of time um, there in the Old Testament. How do we get it? 
how did we come to this understanding and belief of the Old Testament as Scripture that we hold to? Well, it was collected into a, a canon. Uh, collected into a canon, which for us, that, mean, that word means a standard. And this is so important, and I know I'm preaching to the choir, but you never know when somebody might come in and not believe in the canon of Scripture. And so I want to make sure we understand this. We hold fully and firmly to the fact that the 66 books of the Old Testament are the canon of Scripture, the standard. And we've already discussed, I know, on Wednesday nights before, how that canon came to be as these different church councils met in the early times and studied and looked at how these different writings connected to Christ and who wrote these books and how they are to be collected. And that's how we ended up with the Bible we have today. It was transmitted through scribes and it was translated through servants. And that's why, by the way, you hold a copy of God's Word whether it's a hard copy or electronic copy, you hold it in your hand because God inspired it, men wrote it, scribes transmitted it, and servants translated it. And now we have God's word. So, the Old Testament, that's literature-wise. How about historically? Look at the screen. Do you believe this? The Old Testament is real people in real places in real time. We don't believe this is folklore or fairy tale. We believe this is true. I was listening to a podcast recently. It was a, uh, not a Christian, but a podcast who was arguing that the Old Testament stories are folklore, basically, to teach us good examples of life. You know, and and the, person, the person said he liked the stories. I like the Old Testament stories. They, they give us good understanding and teachings for life, but he did not believe they were actual people in real places in real time. We believe these are real, this is a story, the Old Testament is a story set in history. Let me give you a brief understanding of, or a reminder from any of you of Old Testament history. In the beginning, um, there was nothing, this is our next slide, nothing, then something. There was nothing, right, then something. God, in the beginning, God, what? Created. We'll see this next week. That word create means God did not take something that was there and form something cool. The word bara in the Hebrew that means created is God took nothing and made everything. That's the kind of creator our God is. He can create something out of nothing. Nothing than something. Creation. Genesis 1, God made man in his image. Do you think Genesis is relative to today's day and time? It is, isn't it? How many people would doubt that truth? As a matter of fact, we're going to see in the next couple of weeks things that apply to today, creation versus evolution and gender, right? God made man and woman in the beginning, in the early times, in Genesis 1-2. So we're going to see that. The Garden of Eden, the fall of man, we know the sin of Adam. We've talked, heard about it this morning. Humankind continues to sin. God judges the world with the flood, sparing one man, right, Noah, and his family. God said Noah was righteous in his sight, and he, he spared one man. Then after the flood, man, mankind, humankind rebelled at the Tower of Babel. God comes down and what? Disperses the people. So I bet when God dispersed the people after the Tower of Babel, I bet people began to turn to God and get their lives right. Right or not? What's the next thing? So show us. A new beginning. God's faithfulness. 
A new beginning, God goes to Abraham and calls Abraham and says, you and your family are going to bless the entire world. Through your seed, through your family, the whole world's going to be blessed. Abraham's prosperity turns into Israel's slavery there at the end of Genesis. The Exodus, Moses leads people, Israel, out of Egypt. They, they go through the wilderness. God gives them the, the law. You're to follow these laws as you worship and serve God. Finally, the people end up entering the promised land where they're ruled by judges. After the judges, the period of judges, they establish a kingdom. It is led by King David, his son Solomon. We know the story of Solomon building a temple, which is the home of the Ark of the Covenant, center of worship. And after Solomon, the kingdom is divided. North is Israel, the south is Judah. And all of this, by the way, let me stop here. God is working in all this, right? This is the Old Testament summary I'm giving you. Idolatry begins to grow. So to answer my question, no, people do not turn to God as they ought. They continue to rebel. There were some who were righteous, some who were trying to do the right thing, seek God, but idolatry grew. The nation of Assyria, sent by God, destroys Israel in 722 B.C. Babylon comes in and destroys Judah uh, in those time periods, 597 B.C. Survivors are taken in Babylon for 70 years. A remnant comes back to Jerusalem and begins to rebuild the city, rebuild the temple. But Israel longed for the glory it had under King David. That is a very brief, and I went quickly, summary of the Old Testament. But the Old Testament is a story without an ending, isn't it? Because I'm telling you how important the Old Testament is, but we must also recognize, right, how important the New Testament is. To see that all the stuff discussed here is fulfilled in Christ, who later comes in the New Testament. Well, how about, how about theologically? We've looked at the literature, the history of the Old Testament. How about the theological aspects of the Old Testament? A few possibilities of how people like to look at it. Number one, is it just for historical information? Now, we believe this is historical, but is it only for history? Is it just for moral lessons? We can learn moral lessons from Genesis, right? So many stories here to learn from, but is that the main purpose of Genesis? Is it just for examples or character studies to learn or examples in life? All of those are a part of it, but none of those are the main point of the Old Testament. None of those are the theological purpose. The theological purpose of the Old Testament is to reveal how God redeems his people for his kingdom. The Old Testament is a slow revealing of how God redeems his people for his kingdom. So we can say that God's kingdom is a people ruled by a king, a place where the king has dominion, and a purpose for the king and his kingdom. That's God's kingdom that we really read about in Revelation to begin this message, and we see that beginning in Genesis. How about man's purpose? Man's purpose is to enjoy relationship with God, I see that in Genesis 1, 26. In Genesis 1, 26, look at it. God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the, over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. Man's purpose is to enjoy a relationship with God. Let me stop here and say this. Kind of been on my mind this morning is, are we walking with God? Right? We want to be. Are we walking with him through prayer and Bible study and church and just a desire to know him? Are we walking with him? Another purpose for man is to rule over creation. It's said here to have dominion over creation. And then to reproduce God's glory to the ends of the earth. Genesis 1, 28. And God blessed them and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So I wanted to give us this brief kind of review of the Old Testament. Now let's look at specifically this book of Genesis. Um, it really does lay a foundation for the big questions of life, like where, where did God come from, or where do we come from, or what's our purpose in life, or where are we going? All these big questions Genesis has some answers to or some insight on. The book of Genesis can be studied by small children, as I know ours have done here, and yet can be also be studied by the most intellectual scholars in the world. And it appeals to those groups as well. It is appealing. It's something that is interesting to many people. As I said, even non-believers will sometimes read and study this just to see what, what's in there. It has interest. I believe that Genesis is foundational for understanding the rest of the Bible. It really is foundational. Because as you move through the Bible, you're going to see references back, aren't we, to things in Genesis. You're going to get to Romans and see references back to Abraham, aren't you? You're going to hear Jesus reference back to some of these things. And so it's foundational. If you didn't have Genesis, some of the New Testament stuff you, you would read and go, what's that talking about? I don't know what that's talking about. But it references us back to Genesis. Genesis, as I said earlier, it speaks to issues that affect us today. The origin of the universe, creation, evolution, gender, marriage, sin, greed, murder, war, immorality, human dignity. So many things that even apply to life today. Genesis speaks to. Genesis tells the story of a God who creates everything out of nothing in order to bless the people and glorify himself. And Genesis, listen to this, traces a unique family line that leads to a second Adam who will be a source of blessing to all nations, which is Christ. So as we study through this, we're not studying it just for literary purposes or historical purposes. We're studying this to see Christ. And I hope we will. A few things about Genesis here. Some major themes you're going to see that you've already seen as you've read it before. The sovereignty of God in it. For example, why did God choose Abraham? It was his grace, right? Why did God choose one son and not another? His gracious choice. The sovereignty of God. You're going to see the sinfulness of man. We see that early, don't we? We see it in Genesis chapter 3. We see it as the story continues. We see 
all types of sin, even in Genesis. We see also the promises of redemption, the promise of redemption. That's the major themes. There's a major plot. The major plot that works through this entire 50 chapters is God's working in his gracious election of Abraham's family. Look at Genesis chapter 12. Flip to chapter 12 with me. I want you to see this because this plot runs through the entire book. Chapter 12. Verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. How about Isaac? Go to chapter 25, Abraham's son Isaac. In Genesis chapter 25, I don't read all that this morning. I'm just going to... Actually, chapter 26, isn't it? Chapter 26, I should have known there. The covenant he makes with Isaac. In chapter 26. I apologize, I put the wrong text on there. How about chapter 26, verse 24? The Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, thy father. Fear not, for I am with thee and will bless thee and multiply, multiply thy seed for my servant Abraham's sake. Over in chapter 27, we see Jacob. In 37, we see Joseph. We won't read those this morning, but my point is that through the line of Abraham, God is working out his plan. And we see that, and we will see that throughout this book. We don't see Genesis as these individual separate stories. We see them as this one plot working through the family of Abraham. Some other plots I've already mentioned. We are, we are looking to Christ even in Genesis. Even in Genesis 3.15. The Proto-Evangelion, it's called. The looking ahead to Christ is in Genesis 3.15. The covenants with Adam, with Noah, and Abraham. And we're going to see major flaws in main characters, aren't we? All the main characters, pretty much. We see their flaws, which is encouraging to us that when we have flaws, we know we're in good company. And I want to give you this final note here. Genesis was not intended to answer every question we have about these events, right? There are so many theories, even related to verse 1 and 2 of the first Bible, there are so many theories that people discuss and debate, but this book was not written to answer all those theories. It was not written to give us every answer, but we will seek to study and find the answers we can, we can find. Another, another outline thing here is, Foundational events, creation, chapter 1 and 2, the fall, chapters 3 through 5, the flood, chapter 6 through 9, and the nations, chapters 10 through 12. You're going to see these foundational events here at the beginning, uh, in these first 11 chapters. 
Then we're going to see the foundational people. And I've already mentioned those to you, but we can look at them. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And there are other people, of course, of importance that we'll look at throughout there as well. But we see Abraham's faith, Isaac's family, Jacob's conflicts, and Joseph's calamity. So my goal this morning has been to just whet your appetite for a study of Genesis and um, to get us thinking about the big picture of what it is. We will dive into the specific things. We'll dive into Cain and Abel. We'll dive into um, creation. We'll dive into, um, of course, all Abraham, Isaac, and all, all those stories. But I want you to see the big picture of Genesis, right? And so in my research a couple weeks ago, I came across this writing by A.W. Pink. And I tried to figure out a way to turn this into sermon notes for me, but I just couldn't. So I'm just going to kind of read it to you. But I'm going to have each section up on the screen so that you can look at it. Um, because I think it is so appropriate, the way he says it, to give us the big picture view of Genesis. And to remind us of God's purposes in this book. That as we study it, we'll keep remembering what God's purposes are. Pink said that, he said that Genesis is the seed plot of the Bible, for in it almost all the great doctrines which are afterwards are fully developed, are fully developed afterwards come from Genesis. And so I'll begin to read a few of these and Kendall will follow along up there. It's called In Genesis. In Genesis, God is revealed as the creator God, the covenant God, as the almighty God, as well as the most high possessor of heaven and earth. In Genesis, we have the first hint of the blessed Trinity, the plurality of persons in the Godhead. Let us make man in our image. In Genesis, man is exhibited, first as the creature of God's hands, then as a fallen sinful being, and later as one who is brought back to God, finding grace in his sight, walking with God, and made a friend of God. In Genesis, the wiles of Satan are exposed. We are not ignorant of his devices, for here the Holy Spirit has fully uncovered them. The realm in which the arch enemy works is not the moral, but the spiritual. He calls into question the word of God, casts doubt on its integrity, and denies its veracity. In Genesis, the truth of sovereign election is first exhibited. God singles out Abraham from an idolatrous people and makes him the father of the chosen nation. In Genesis, the truth of salvation is typically displayed. I love this. Our fallen first parents are clothed by God himself, clothed with skins, to procure those skins, death had to come in and blood must be shed. The innocent was slain instead of the guilty. Only thus could man's shame be covered and only thus could the sinner be fitted to stand before a holy God. In Genesis, the truth of justification by faith is first made known. Chapter 15, verse 6, And he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. Abraham believed God not Abraham obeyed God or loved God or served God, but Abraham believed God 
and it was counted to him for righteousness. In Genesis, the believer's security is illustrated. The flood of the divine judgment descends on the earth and swallows up all its guilty inhabitants, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We see the believer's security. In Genesis, the truth of separation is clearly shown. Enoch's lot was cast in days wherein evil abounded, but he lived apart from the world, and he walked with God. Abraham was called upon to separate himself from the idolatrous people and to step upon the promises of God. Lot is held up before us as an example of direful consequences of being unequally yoked with unbelievers and having fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness. In Genesis, God's discipline upon erring believers is clearly seen. Time and time again, there are examples of those God disciplines. But in the end, divine grace triumphs over human frailty. In Genesis, we are seeing the importance and the value of prayer. Abraham prayed to God, and we see many answered prayers. Abraham's servant cries to the Lord that God would prosper his efforts to secure a wife for Isaac, and God answered that petition, chapter 24. We see answered prayers in Genesis. In Genesis, the divine incarnation is first declared. The coming one was to be supernaturally begotten. He was to enter this world as none other ever did. He was to be the son of man and yet have no human father. The one who should bruise the serpent's head was to be the woman's seed. In Genesis, the death and resurrection of the Savior are foreshadowed. The ark in which were preserved Noah and his family were brought safely through the deluge of death onto the new earth. Isaac, the beloved son of Abraham, at the bidding of his father, is laid unresistingly on the altar, and from it Abraham received him back as a figure from the dead. In Genesis, the priesthood of Christ is anticipated. The Lord Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. In Genesis, the judgment of God on the wicked is solemnly exhibited. As a matter of fact, let me add this, as we read Genesis, right, aren't there some stories when you go, wow, how can God do that to people, right? Why would God do that to these people? We'll see stories like that, but what do we know and believe? Well, God's ways are not our ways, right? We see his judgment on the wicked. Cain confesses, confesses his punishment, that his punishment is greater than he can bear. The flood sweeps away the world. Fire and brimstone descend upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And how about Lot's wife, for one act of disobedience, turned into a pillar of salt? And Pink finishes with this final quote on this great writing. He says, What a marvelous proof is all of this of the divine authorship of Genesis. Who but the one who knows the end from the beginning could have embodied what is expanded and amplified in the rest of the Bible? What demonstration that there was one mind directing the pens of all who wrote the later books of Holy Scripture. May the blessing of God rest upon us as we seek to enjoy some of the inexhaustible riches of this book of beginnings. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 1. I've just, as I said, I just want to kind of introduce
whet our appetites to this. And so I want you to think this week, before you come back next week, about chapter 1, and maybe even go read chapter 1, as we come next week and we consider the foundational truth that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray.